Hello and welcome. I'm Andrew Vieth, and this is Rebel History. The year is 1897. The place, a desolate downtown street. The young man's brown leather shoes were caked with dirt from the rough city streets. He stumbled, then fell on the dusty cobblestones. He wore dark wool pants with matching vest and jacket, not remembering at what point he'd lost his eight-panel cap. It was not a fancy outfit, but certainly his finest, hoping to impress some of the ladies at one of downtown Seattle's box houses, purveyors of good drinks and fine women. He'd met a young beauty, a waitress, who had plied him with drinks and affections. It was a magical evening, believing in his whiskey-induced revelry that he just might fall in love. That is, right up until his money ran out. Now he found himself far past tipsy, struggling through the thick fog of drunkenness to locate his hotel. The plan was to spend tomorrow shopping for the prospecting equipment he'd need for the Yukon before joining fellow adventurers on their way north to the Klondike Gold Rush. But it seemed he'd be resigned to nursing a hangover instead. Consciousness fluttering, he laid on the knobby cobblestone road, their cold smoothness beginning to feel quite inviting, like little pillows. The last thing he remembered were hands rousting him awake, prodding him to move. The sun spilled in from the solitary port window. The small, circular opening looking out on a vast turquoise sea. In quiet, desperate disbelief, he rose from the small cot, bracing himself against the metal hole as the room swayed. He puked all over the floor. Slapping his face firmly, he pleaded to wake up, to open his eyes in his hotel bed. He didn't wake up. The tiny room, the endless water, becoming concrete in his reality. The heavy metal door swung open, and a gruff man, his tanned, leathery skin highlighting the white of his toothy grin. He held an apple in one calloused hand and a switchblade in the other. Looking the young man in the eye, he cackled. Next stop, Shanghai. Seattle newspaper ads from 1897 warned, 
indulge a little too much, and you run the risk of being shanghaied. Young men enjoying a night out on the town, especially those stopping in Seattle on their way to the gold rush, would black out from too many drinks. Prowling thugs would kidnap the poor fellows. They'd awake the next morning on a ship that had set sail for Asia. And a forged work contract entitling them to a pathetically small wage. More than a few young men with dreams of Yukon gold found themselves instead tricked into a journey to faraway shores. A year earlier, on August 16, 1896, American George Washington Carmack, along with First Nation members Skookum Jim Mason and Dawson Charlie, struck gold along the Klondike River. Yee-haw. Newspapers got wind of the discovery, running headlines such as, Gold, gold, gold. Prospectors carrying out stacks of yellow metal. They claimed miners were striking it rich, left and right, carrying out fortunes of over $100,000, three million by today's value. The news spread like wildfire, and over 100,000 adventurous souls set out for Alaska in their ultimate destination, the frigid Canadian Yukon. For many of these stampeders, their route would take them first to Seattle, where they could acquire gear and provisions. Before setting sail for the tiny Alaskan towns of Skagway or Dyea. From there began a brutal march, 33 miles through steep, icy, treacherous terrain. Upon reaching the end of the trail, prospectors had to build or rent boats to complete the final dangerous leg of the journey, sailing hundreds of miles on the turbulent Yukon River to reach Dawson City. 33 miles is not an overly great distance to trek, but things were complicated by the Canadian government, who required stampeders to bring a full year's worth of food and supplies with them, totaling just over 2,000 pounds, the so-called ton of goods. This meant the men would have to cover the distance a great many times, ferrying and stashing parts of their huge haul of supplies in stages. Hundreds of men wearing 70 to 80 pound packs and standing close enough to touch could be seen cued on the slippery slopes of the Golden Staircase, a dramatically steep section of the route in which 1,500 steps had been hacked into the ice. Very few of these hopeful men would actually strike it rich, often leaving the Yukon with nothing. Most fortunes during the Yukon Gold Rush were in fact made profiting off the miners rather than actually mining gold. 
In Seattle, they had a term for this, mining the miners. The gold rush caused an economic boom in Seattle. The Canadian government published a list of essential items for every stampeder, including warm clothes and outerwear, boots, blankets, and towels, mosquito netting, personal care items, medicine, candles and matches, soap, mining tools, and camping equipment, plus roughly 1,000 pounds of food. Local businesses sprang up to service the enormous demand. Notable ones still in existence include Filson and Bartell Drugs. Some did strike gold, however. A young Swedish immigrant, John W. Nordstrom, struck gold in the Yukon and returned to Seattle with $13,000, investing 4,000 of it in starting a shoe store on 4th Avenue and Pike Street, never imagining it would end up traded on the New York Stock Exchange. The influx of rough, rowdy stampeders brought with it an increased demand for the city's sinful pleasures. It was the type of fun the young men would be missing in the desolate north. Catering to loggers, sailors, and other gruff characters, the Tenderloin District of Seattle, everything south of Yesler Street, had already become infamous for its saloons, cigar stores, gambling parlors, dance halls, and brothels. The area was notorious for robbery and its crib houses, large brothels, with up to 100 cubicles for patrons to partake in their desired vice. With the huge number of miners coming through town, purveyors of sin sprung up everywhere, and business was booming. Thirsty young men with a little coin in their pocket could saddle up to establishments like Billy's Mug. Cock and dog fights kept the crowd entertained while bartenders slid beers down the 50-foot bar to patrons. The owner and namesake of the bar, William Blonde, also known as Billy the Mug, was no stranger to a scrap, a persona furthered by his portraits of him holding his prize pit bulls on chains while his fighting cocks stood at attention behind him. Adored by the ladies, Billy remained a bachelor throughout his life. It's said that he had fallen in love with a girl named Dolly when he was young, but she had died of scarlet fever. Dolly had a beautiful doll that looked strikingly similar to herself, and Billy kept it with him until the day he died, a delicate reminder of the past amidst the rough world he lived in. Above Billy's mug was the Owl's Club, one of the many gambling spots owned by John Considine. His network of gambling establishments and box houses, a sort of lowbrow theater, bar, and brothel hybrid, extended throughout the city, finding quick success 
by employing the most beautiful women he could find. Considine even went as far as bringing Fareda Mazar Syropolis, known as Little Egypt, to Seattle. She'd stolen the show at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, where the public had never seen anything like the hoochie-coochie dance she performed, better known today as belly dancing. Considine was a formidable figure in the flourishing Seattle crime world, even taking on historic Old West lawman and cowboy hunter Wyatt Earp. Earp had tried to establish a brothel in town, so Constantine paid the police chief at the time to run him out of town. However, the next police chief, William Meredith, a former employee of Constantine's, was much less friendly, and a grudge arose between the two. Things came to a head when Constantine testified against the crooked cop Meredith exposing his acceptance of bribes and crooked police work. In response, Meredith claimed the underworld boss, Constantine, had entered into an affair with a young contortionist, arranging for an abortion when she later became pregnant. Public opinion came down against police chief Meredith, and the mayor forced his resignation. Enraged, Meredith sent a former deputy to the second-hand store to acquire a sawed-off shotgun he'd seen there. With a gun in hand, he went searching for Constantine, making ominous remarks to those he encountered in the streets. Finding him and his brother Tom at Guy's drugstore, Meredith came up behind the pair and fired. The first shot barely missed John Constantine's head the small, deadly metal pieces of buckshot whizzing by. Meredith pressed on, pushing past Tom and firing again at John, who was scrambling away. A piece of buckshot caught John in the back of the neck, but the majority missed, hitting a bystander in the arm and shattering prescription bottles on the store shelves. John was trapped against the counter as Meredith dropped the shotgun and reached for his revolver. Yelling for his brother, John lunged at Meredith, pushing him hard before he could draw the gun. Tom snapped too and managed to grab the revolver from Meredith, striking him hard enough to fracture his skull. Two policemen barged in the door, ordering Tom to drop the revolver. Tom, however, raised the gun to keep the men back and John stepped away from the injured Meredith, who slumped over the counter. In that tense moment, Meredith forced himself up, reaching for the third gun he carried. John fought off the man holding him back and pulled a 38 caliber revolver from his pocket. Stepping close to Meredith, he fired three shots. One of them struck Meredith right through the heart. Meredith uttered his final word, oh, and dropped to the floor, dead. John was immediately arrested, but he and his brother were later acquitted of murder 
John Constantine, once crime baron of Seattle, would continue with his love of show business, making significant contributions to American vaudeville, often considered the precursor to Hollywood. Next episode on Rebel History. The black-maned lion preaches from his soapbox. A steady march towards prohibition and the first rum runners. Rebel History is written, narrated, and produced by Andrew Feith. Rebel History, shining light on the shadows of history and the rebels who dwell there.